0: like to take a moment as we've been doing and give you an opportunity if you have a testimony that you'd like to share of something you've been reading in the Bible this week, a truth about God that you've been meditating on, or perhaps a testimony of how God's worked in your life in the last few days, be glad for you to share that with us. Yes. Believing God's word and that the consequences will follow if we don't obey it, for sure. Anyone else? Yes. else? All right. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn to James chapter 2. When you come to a passage like James 2, it's interesting how the context of society where you read the passage can affect your first reading of it. The reason I say that is we see some of these elements here, and it sounds similar to messages we might hear in society today about conflicts between people of different uh, economic backgrounds. Here's rich people not getting along with poor people, and, and that's really the core issue in this passage. But if we look closer, James is not primarily talking about the rightness of being poor and the, the wrongness of being rich or so forth, in and of themselves. We have to notice that what he is connecting those things to is someone standing before God. And really the main point that I think that he's making in this passage has less to do about conflict between rich and poor and more to do with our attitude toward God's word and God's law. And that question is this. Do I view God's word, God's law, as something that i can disregard and make my own judgments and evaluations of people and situations or do i recognize that i am going to be evaluated by god's word by god's law and therefore it ought to impact the way that i live the way that i speak the things that i do toward other people i think this is is borne out if we look at verse one He says, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says it again in verse 4, if you behave in the way that verses 2 and 3 describe, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And then he says uh, that if you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well, verse 8. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you're committed sin and are convicted, judged, evaluated by the law as transgressors. Verse 11, if you do any of these things, you become a transgressor of the law. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And then verse 13, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is it that James is trying to get his readers to think about? As I mentioned last week, I think verses 26 and 27 are transitional in both connecting to the previous section, what does true faith look like, and here's some of its characteristics, and this section, which develops in more detail one of the points that he made at the end of chapter 1. Verse 26 talks about the tongue and what it reveals about our faith, about our hearts. He's going to pick that back up in chapter 3. Verse 27 talks about pure and undefiled religion with regard to visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. And then he goes into this part about personal favoritism, and sometimes we say, well, there's no connection whatsoever. But there's a connection to worldliness, and there's a connection to the specific examples he gives of people who are poor, probably in mind those in the believing community, and how they are treated so come back to chapter two don't hold your faith with an attitude of personal favoritism what does he mean by personal favoritism he's gonna illustrate a moment but simply put personal favoritism is saying I like this person for selfish reasons they can do something for me they're more attractive to me in some way I like this person and not that person and James is going to condemn that way of thinking as a worldly perspective on how we evaluate our interactions with other people. He illustrates in verses 2 and 3. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, so someone walks in, you can tell they've got money. In our context, it would be they're driving a really nice car, they're wearing expensive jewelry or a nice wash if it's a guy, They've, uh, they're very well dressed. You can tell that it's a custom suit. This person, you can tell, has a lot of this world's goods. Okay, Someone else comes in. Comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. He's not saying you're more righteous if you wear a suit. What he's saying is, here's the guy who comes in. He's been working all day with his hands, he hasn't had time to get a shower he walks into the assembly because he wants to be there gather with God's people but your first reaction is start to inch away from him and say you know what this guy smells bad this guy didn't shave and wash today this guy clearly is working just a normal job and uh, doesn't have a whole lot of extra money probably just based on what I can see right in front of me If we look at those two sorts of people, we say to ourselves, I'm going to treat this guy well because he's well off, and this guy badly because he's just like me or worse off than me. Verse 3, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil motives. In this culture, there are some who have said, well, there was a a practice of kind of a sponsorship. If you got connections with the right people, they could sort of help you out in getting good jobs and a nice position in society. But what James is saying is, whether that's the case or whether it's just simply the same sort of uh, self-serving, reasons that drive us to act in similar ways today? Whatever the reason, James is saying, that sort of thinking doesn't have any place in the church. Why is that the case? Your standing before God is not based on the size of your wallet, your bank account, your retirement savings, any of those sorts of things. Your standing before God is is an attitude of humility, recognizing God owes you nothing and has given you everything in Christ. Contrast that with an attitude that says, I'm going to treat people better because by the things that are important to this world, they've got it and they can help me get it. Humility, pride, godliness, worldliness, and James condemns this in verse 4 and says you become judges with evil motives. There are parallels in this passage, I think, to some of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. Let me read that for you briefly. And that's another passage that is um, often, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, often misunderstood. Do not judge that so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The last part has to do with, I think, evaluating our own, uh, are we sinful, or are we righteous in God's sight before we get on everyone else's case around us about their standing in that regard. But I think the parallel with what it says here in James 2 is what it says in verse 1 and 2. Do not judge so you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of mercy it will be measured to you. James is going to make the point not never make any judgments, not never make any evaluations, but be careful that The distinctions or the evaluations that you make are not on the basis of wrong motives, false criteria, things which dishonor God with regard to how you're evaluating the people around you. He makes this point in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. James is not saying this. He's not saying you get to go to heaven because you don't have anything in this life. And people have read this passage that way from time to time. That's not what he's saying. I think he's saying something similar to what Paul says in his letters to the Corinthians. There are not many wise, not many rich, not many mighty according to the standard of this world. What's the reason for that? Some of it is the mysterious plan of God, and some of it is the simple reality that many times people who are in those positions of power and wealth and strength don't think that they need God. Jesus said a similar thing with regard to the rich young ruler. He said it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He said go sell all that you have. He's not condemning wealth automatically, he's saying that when you are in a position where you have every need supplied and everything you could ever want, you run the danger of what uh, Lamech says in Proverbs, I'll be tempted to forget God because I think I don't need Him. And so God has often chosen those who have nothing in this world or are nothing by this world's standards to have everything in Christ. And James says, if you look at that person with worldly eyes and say, you're nothing, you're not looking at them with Christ's perspective, you're looking at them with a worldly perspective, you've become a judge of with evil motives because who is that person that person is a brother in Christ that person is a sister in Christ they are fellow heirs of the promises of eternal life and all the other blessings connected with salvation so don't treat them like that and go stand in the corner and they're worth nothing in your sight he further develops this idea in verse 6 But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Who is it that was persecuting Christians? Think back to the context of this book. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed, scattered abroad. Why were they scattered? those in positions of power, those with wealth on their side, those who, most importantly, had rejected Christ, used their power and their influence and their authority to persecute the early church. And so James is saying something like this, this person is a brother in Christ, and you're treating him badly because he doesn't have a lot, or because you think he can't help you get ahead by this world's standards. This person you're treating well. And not every rich person is condemned by God or, or an unbeliever. But James is going to bring this theme out several times in this book. He says in verse chapter 1, verse 11, The sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. Its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. He mentions it here. He mentions it in chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. In that context, the righteous man who will fade away are the the rich man who will fade away suddenly, the rich man who is persecuting those who are trusting in Christ, and in anticipation of what he's going to say in chapter 5 about the rich who have oppressed and not upheld what God requires of them. Why would you despise this person who loves God and try to exalt this person who, in the majority of cases, is someone who is an unbeliever and is seeking to exploit you and persecute you and mistreat you? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Because you're looking at the situation with worldly eyes, not with Christ's perspective about it. Verse 8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Some translations render this something like the law of the king, or the kingly law. Who does that have reference to? Who gives this law? It's God. Jesus sums up the law of Moses with the statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. James says, if you fulfill the law according to Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Am I loving my neighbor as myself if I say I'm going to mistreat this person because they can't help me out, they don't have what I want, something along those lines? No. Or at the very least, I'm doing it for this person and not for this person, and that's what he's condemning. He says, don't hold faith with favoritism, Don't be a judge with evil motives. Instead, love your neighbors yourself. Think about Jesus' illustration of this. Guy gets beat up on the road. Who comes along and helps him? Not the priest, not the Levite, the Samaritan, the guy that everybody despises and hates. Jesus says this, I think, to some respect, to shock his hearers into recognizing the one who God is pleased with He's not the one who lives up to everyone else's expectations or is right in man's standing or all those sorts of things. It's the person who actually does what God requires of us. He says again in verse nine, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why? Not because you are specifically doing something the law says you shouldn't, but because you're not doing everything the law says you should, sometimes we get very focused on law breaking as being God says, tell the truth, and I say you know what I'm going to lie instead. Or God says, love those around you, and we say you know what, I'm going to behave like Cain and show hatred, leading up to. Even what Cain did in the case of murder. But many times, our sin is not only that we do things God told us not to do, it's that we fail to do everything God requires of us. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5:48. "Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect." Paul reminds us in Romans. We all fall short of God's glory in that regard, right? None of us live up to that standard. James is not arguing, I think, that we are to keep what God expects of us so that God will accept us. Sometimes people have made what James is saying here and in the next section a conflict against what Paul says or against what other New Testament authors say, and have tried to make it a conflict, like they say, be saved by faith, and James says, be saved by works. That's not what James is doing. What he is doing instead is saying, if you already have faith, where are the works to back it up? If you already have faith, what are the signs that God is at work in you? If you already have faith, why are you still living like you don't know God? Because people who don't know God They look at the people around them and they say, useful, not useful. They treat people as as means to an end. That person helps me, that person is an obstacle. That person I like, this person I can't stand. So I'm going to treat them according to what benefits me. That's being a judge with evil motives. That's showing personal favoritism. That is not upholding what God requires where He says, We ought to show love to the people around us, love our neighbors as ourselves, not because they're the nicest people in the world, not because they can help us out in life, not because they're the most desirable in some respect or another, but because they're human beings created in God's image, and because ultimately that's what God is like. How has God treated you and I? We didn't have anything for God to say, yeah, that guy... I want him on my team. It's not a draft pick because we think this person has potential. We were all the bottom of the barrel, worthless, morally speaking, in God's sight. And God said, you don't deserve it, but come over here. And then someone has people walk into the presence in the context of the church and we're like, yeah, you know what? Jesus said to me, come sit over here, even though I didn't deserve it. But I'm going to say, you go sit in the back corner. James says, how does that fit with genuine faith? It doesn't. And we might say, well, but that's just a little thing. He says in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This is the point that I was making in our Sunday school discussion this morning. Sometimes people have tended to view the law of Moses from the perspective of let's subdivide it into different categories. Let's say here's things that had to do with sacrifices, here's things that had to do with government, here's things that had to do with ethics in the nation of Israel. The problem with that is James is saying if you violate any of the law that God has given, you're guilty of all of it. Verse 11 he says, he who said do not commit murder or adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. These are negative actions, sinful things, stepping over the line. But I think by extension, if you were a person in the nation of Israel under the law of Moses and said, you know what, I'm not going to offer the sacrifices God requires me, but everything else, I'm going to do what God says, you've broken the law. You may not have broken all the Ten Commandments, But you've broken at least one of the first ones, right? Because you said what I think is more important than what God has said. Are we under the law of Moses? Verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And we have to consider our context. Is James speaking to believers in the early church and saying in some respect as Jews they're still under the law? Paul argues pretty emphatically about that later when he writes the book of Romans, and I don't think James is arguing for his hearers that they are bound by the law of Moses. Why? Because Christ came, fulfilled the law in all points, and so instead of us trying to fulfill the law of Moses, Christ has done that in our place. The first objection that people tend to raise to that perspective on this passage and the other ones I mentioned is this. Well, if we're not under the law of Moses, what's there to keep us from doing all sorts of crazy things and sinful things? Because we'll just go our own way. There's nothing to restrain us. James says here to be judged by the law of liberty. There's another translation that says the law which produces freedom. He said in chapter 1 and verse 25, one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty and abides by it not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer this man will be blessed in what he does what is he saying in verse 12 then why is it a law of liberty when Paul describes over and over again the law as something that is burdensome and producing more sin and um, unable to produce righteousness in us how could James call this a law of liberty I think there's parallels to what Paul says in Galatians chapter (coughs) 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That's Galatians 5 and verse 1. I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So as a Gentile, if you place yourself under the rites and the rituals of the Mosaic law, you have denied the effectiveness of what Christ has already done on your behalf. And his offering, and sacrifice, you're saying it's of no regard. You have been severed from Christ. Uh, I testify to every man who receives circumcision, he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Same point James makes, right? You break any of it, you're guilty of all of it you participate, submit yourself under the law of Moses, you have the burden and the weight of bearing up under all of its requirements. Verse 4, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we who through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness, in Christ Jesus neither, un- neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. He's speaking very emphatically, he's saying, I wish that those who are teaching this false doctrine to you would not just preach circumcision, would be, but preach such a thing that they would never be able to bear children and their error would die out with them. Verse thirteen. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, where do we stand in relationship to the law? Think about the law that God gave to Adam and Eve don't eat of the tree, work the garden. Right? Think of the law that God gives to Noah. He repeats some of the things he said to Adam and Eve. He says some more things to Noah with regard to what food they can eat and upholding the value of life in Genesis 9-6. What law does he give to the people of Israel? 630, if I remember correctly, and if the people who have counted them have counted them right. What law does he give to us in the New Testament church? There's similarity and dissimilarity to the requirements that came before. Our command is not, don't eat of the tree, because that's over and done with. Our command is not, in the same way it was to Moses, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, because that has taken place. But the thing about upholding the value of life, that still remains. The things that he said to the people of Israel that set them off as a unique people, some of which we still look at, and we're a little bit puzzled. We say, why, God, why did you give this command? And sometimes the only answer we can come back to is because it set them off from the people around them and was supposed to be part of their unique identity as people who were different from the other nations. But then Christ comes, and Christ fulfills the law, and so Paul says in Galatians, don't go back to all that came before and see it as something that binds you to a slavery that says, if you don't keep this, you're condemned in God's sight because Christ fulfilled it on your behalf. But does that mean there's nothing that we're required to do? No. What does Paul say is the summary of the law? What does James say is the summary of the law? What did Jesus say is the summary of the law? What was the thing that God in its most basic essence had been trying to get humanity to do for the entire span of human history? Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the other specific commands that we see in Scripture to a certain extent are an outworking of that. Either of love the Lord your God with everything you've got or love your neighbor as yourself. Did God change his mind about whether he wanted us to do that? No. Should we look at that law as a means of reaching God by our own effort? No. So what then is the Christian's relationship to the law? The Christian's relationship to the law is that it is a law of liberty because we now have the opportunity by the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ and the plan of God the Father to see serving one another, loving one another as ourselves in God's sight. We have the opportunity to do that. Not in bondage, not in fear, not in condemnation, but because that's what God created us to do. So why do I live a certain way? Because what God requires of His people in the New Testament is not that dissimilar from what He required of His people in the Old Testament. What does He say in the book of Micah? What does He require of you, a man, to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? There's a lot of parallels between that and what James says in verse 13. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged, because by the standard you judge, you will be judged. James says, don't be judges with evil motives. Instead, show mercy as God has shown you mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment, and because ultimately you're not the highest authority. God is, and what he's revealed in his word, is the basis on which you will be evaluated. So if that's what you'll be evaluated by, that's what you evaluate other people by not by worldly standards, not by this person is rich and that person is poor, this person is handsome and that person is ugly, this person is old and that person is young. Those are worldly ways of evaluating people. They may be true after a fashion. They may have some use or function in society for some purpose, but in the context of the church, we don't treat people differently because of all those things. What unites us? Verse 5, those who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. It's not our economic status that unites us, even though the majority of the people that James was writing to were poor because they'd been scattered, ripped out of their homes and their jobs and where they grew up and all those sorts of things. The majority of them would have been poor that James was writing to, but that wasn't the thing that ultimately united them. It was the question of their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And James says, if you have true faith, don't hold it with favoritism. Because that's contrary to the way that God has worked in your life. You didn't deserve salvation, but God granted it to you. So why would you turn around and look at the person over here and be like, I'm going to evaluate you in a way that God didn't evaluate me? Why would you exalt yourself and say, I'm going to treat you a certain way, acting as though I'm the ultimate judge of all these things and I don't stand under God's judgment and God's word has no authority over my life. How can you act that way if you're a believer? James says you can't. So, what's his conclusion? Love your neighbor as yourself, not because you're earning your way to God by doing it, but because you're showing God's at work in you when you do something that is impossible, humanly speaking and in your natural state and if you're living according to the course of this world if you love your neighbors yourself it's a sign that God's working in you so speak and so act as those who be judged by the law of liberty I'm not the authority God is the authority so I ought to live my life in a way recognizing that I answer to God and my life ought to be characterized by mercy because if it's not God's judgment may well be falling on me because I have never really understood the mercy that I ought to have received as a believer. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Think about the parable that Jesus gave, right? The guy that owes a million dollars. Master forgives him. Goes around and says, you owe me 50 bucks, you're going to jail till you pay up. And your wife and your kids, they're going to have to work as slaves until you can pay me what you owe. What happened to that person in that story? He faced severe judgment. Why? Because he didn't get the mercy that had been shown to him. In the same way, if you and I act as though we haven't received God's mercy, it may be because we have it. We don't really know him. Or at the very least, we have a lot to do in thinking and growing in our understanding of all that God has done for us. So what does true faith look like? It doesn't look like favoritism. I like this person. This person helps me out. This person is the person to know according to the standards of this world. We look at one another in the church and we say, how can I love this person as my neighbor, as myself, because that's got what God ultimately really wants me to do. I can't do it in my own strength. I'm not doing it to work my way to heaven, to get in a right relationship with God. I'm doing it because I'm in a right relationship with God. If I have that genuine faith, instead of showing favoritism, I'll show self-sacrificial love. Instead of showing harsh judgment, I'll show mercy. Instead of exalting those whom the world sees as important, but who in reality are seeking to harm and who hate God, I'll say, you know what? I don't need them. But this person over here that the world thinks is useless and unimportant and without value, if that person's my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, that's the person that I need to be joining myself with. That's the person who I really am already joined with in Christ. So this passage is, it mentions rich and poor, but it's not about some kind of class warfare. It mentions the law, but it's not about getting to God by works, as some people have wrongly understood it. This passage is saying, God intended people to live a certain way from the very beginning. As we've seen over and over again in the book of Genesis, that didn't happen. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command. Cain killed his brother. Lamech killed several people. Noah got drunk and disgraced himself. The people at the tower exalted themselves in pride. What was not happening in the book of Genesis? Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor God above all else. We as Christians have the privilege and the opportunity to do what God intended us to do, not because we're under the law of Moses, which bound God's people Israel for a specific period of time, but because... God has desired his people to live a certain way all throughout history. And we have the liberty and the freedom and the possibility of doing so by his grace. If we have believed in Christ because God has given us new life, we can, instead of showing favoritism, show impartial love. Instead of being judges with evil motives, We can evaluate people rightly in the categories that God has set up, like, is this person a believer or not a believer? We can show mercy instead of judgment. We can speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty and not be condemned as those who really don't know what God is like, what His law expects of us, or what it means to really be one of God's people, one of God's creation. Instead, we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves, not show favoritism, so that we might not be condemned, but rather find God's mercy, show God's mercy to others, and be evaluated by God's law of liberty. This person is doing what I've called them to do. Let's pray. Lord, it's really easy for us to show favoritism. Throughout the course of the day, so many times we look at someone and we say that I know what that person is like. I don't want to be around that person. That person has nothing to offer me. That person is in my way. That person is worthless. I say we wouldn't do that as Christians, but we do. We don't know those people. The thing that really matters is whether that person is in a right standing with you or not. Not whether they fit our ideal according to worldly standards. Lord, that may affect our perspective on who we think ought to be a part of our church. That may affect our perspective on the sort of people that we're willing to talk to. That may affect our perspective on ourselves. Are we really, truly loving people like Christ has loved us? Or are we really only loving people who look like us in some way or another, can help us out, fits some sort of human standard of what we think people should be. Lord, help us not to be judges with evil motives. Help us not to hold our faith with a kind of favoritism. Help us not to be judging people in a way that's harsh, that forgets the mercy that you have shown to us. Help us to recognize that even as we make evaluations or assessments of people around us, ultimately, You are making an assessment of us. Are we pleasing in Your sight? Or are we just pleasing ourselves? Lord, we can't fulfill this command to love our neighbor as ourself apart from Your help because we're selfish, because we want things that please us, Because apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, this week I pray that as we encounter people, we would ask ourselves these questions that are raised for us in the text. How am I evaluating this person? Am I concerned for their soul or only for what they look like? Am I concerned for whether that person is a brother and sister in Christ or some other thing that's a shallow and a sinful and a selfish way of evaluating them? Lord, this is something that is so ingrained in our hearts. I pray that you would help purge it out of us. Lord, help the most important thing to be to us. Does someone standing next to me that I'm looking at, do they know Christ? Are they rightly following Christ? Not all of the other things that so often come before in our minds. Help us to live out this passage. Help us to honor you. Help us to do it, not because we think we'll make you happier, but because if we really know you, we owe you our all. We're not repaying a debt. We're simply doing what you have called us to do as your people. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to see your word. We pray that your spirit would change our hearts by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.